Our Father in heaven, we thank you that many of us here sit here this morning as your children, that we are the Father's child because of what our Lord Jesus has done for us. We thank you, Father, that you are feeding us with your word this morning. We pray that your spirit will work in us, that will help us to trust in you, to believe in your word, and not to despise your great grace, and that we may obey our King and our Savior, Jesus. Father, we pray also for those amongst us who have not put their trust in Jesus this morning. We pray that your spirit will speak powerfully through your word, that they may come to hear your voice and become your child. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, very good morning to all of you again. For those who have not met me, uh, my name is Kenneth. I'm one of the pastors here in Samari, and I'll be preaching from Numbers 25 today. Say you have been asked by a friend, say tomorrow morning in the office pantry perhaps, you have been asked by a friend to introduce God to him. He wants to get to know our God a little bit more, the God of the Bible. My question to you is this, how many of us as Christians would use the incident that was just read to us in number 25 to tell your friend about God? To explain to him the very nature and the very character of our great God? Anyone? In the story, we see a wrathful and angry and jealous God. Would you be excited and proud as you introduce your God to your friend through this episode? Or would you be embarrassed? Well, if you are embarrassed, I hope that by the end of today's sermon, you will change your mind. As you come to see how Numbers 25 actually captures for us some great truths about our great God. The storyline of today is fairly simple and fairly straightforward. First of all, from verses 1 to 3, Israel commits adultery against God. Verses 4 to 5, God gets angry and he judges Israel. Verses 6, verse 6 is one Israelite sins blatantly. And then verses 7 to 9, an Israelite kills the sinners. And then 10 to 15, God's anger is propitiated. And then he ends off by God commanding the removal of further temptations to sin. That's the basic storyline. I'll be drawing three lessons that we can be learning about humanity and about God from this chapter. But first of all, let us take note of the context in which we find this incident. Israel has spent 40 years already wandering in the desert, and that's for the rebellion against God. And now they resume their journey to the promised land. So far, since they started the journey again, they have been faced with various obstacles. There were strong military oppositions, a Canaanite king fought against them, an Amorite king refused them passage. And last week, we saw that there was some kind of black magic attack on them from a Moabite king, Balak, and his assistant, Balaam. Now, one way of seeing the context of, the, of this passage is this. Military power could not defeat Israel, neither can spiritual curses. But now in number 25, sexual seduction can do that. But let me propose a slightly nuanced way of looking at it. The backdrop of Numbers is clear. God is bringing Israel into the land that he promised them. 
The question throughout the whole book has always been, will Israel arrive safely at the promised land? Numbers 25, therefore, reveals to us again that Israel's greatest threat at arriving at the promised land is not external, but internal. It is not the external mighty military forces, neither is it the external occult powers. No, it is the, the greatest threat lies within Israel itself. Let me put it from another angle for you, from God's angle. God's greatest challenge in bringing Israel safely into the promised land is not Israel's enemies or their military strength. Neither is it Israel's enemy and their powerful sorceries. No, these are very easy, peasy, lemon squeezy for God. This wouldn't require God to sacrifice his own son to overcome. No, God's biggest problem is Israel. More specifically, it is Israel's stubborn and rebellious and adulterous heart. Numbers 25, we will see this problem being played out again. And more than that, we will see a hint of God's solution to Israel's problem. So as I say, I'll be drawing out three important lessons. We will begin with lesson one and two, which are intertwined. So in, as I go through the passage, you see me overlapping one over the other. But basically, lesson one concerns Israel's problem, that is an adulterous heart. And lesson two concerns God's jealousy and anger towards adulterous Israel. Let's take a look at verse one. Verse one says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to haul with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, and that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of this man who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Israel began to have sexual relationships with Moabite women that's in the region, and they eventually worshipped their gods, which is called Baal of Peor. As a result, God became very angry. His anger is kindled against them, threatening their very lives. And God is angry because he is jealous. And we see that in verses 10 to 13. Verse 10, And the Lord said to Moses, Phanias, the son of Eliza, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Well, we'll reflect on Phanias later, but the point is clear that God is jealous. He was jealous. He was angry and jealous over Israel's reaction. Now, let's think about Israel's reaction, uh, Israel's action, and God's reaction for a little while. 
A few things worth reflecting here. First of all, this may sound pretty obvious, but it needs to be said. That is, God's anger is real, and it actually provoked him to action. God is personally angry with Israel. When humans sin, it provokes God's wrath and God's judgment. God is not merely angry with sin as an abstract, impersonal sense, as if sin can be detached from the perpetrators. No, God's wrath is directly towards, directed towards the sinners. Whatever it was that Israel had done, which we'll be looking at in a short while, the point is that it made God angry, fiercely angry with Israel. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, he said. So God has now become Israel's number one problem in life, biggest problem, because they have offended him personally and his wrath is upon them, threatening to kill them. Before I became a Christian in 2001, I didn't know that God was angry with me at all. I happily went about living my life. But my ignorance didn't mean that I didn't offend God. I did. And my ignorance didn't mean that God wasn't angry with me. He was angry. Many people today still do not know that they have offended God the same way that I had, the same way that the Israelite had. If that is you this morning, this episode will show you how you have offended God like the rest of mankind. One of my most, if not the most, important role as a Christian is to tell people how angry, how very angry God is, is with humankind. Jonathan Edwards, an 18th-century Christian preacher, said this concerning God's anger towards humanity. He said, I quote, God abhors you. His anger is provoked, and His wrath burns against you like fire. You are 10,000 times more detestable to Him than the most hated venomous snake is to us. You have offended Him infinitely, more than any criminal has offended a judge. You might not see this yet, but our biggest problem in life is that God is seriously very angry with us. Secondly, having said that, it really begs the question now, isn't it? Why? Why is God so angry? What terrible evil had Israel done? Well, they were attracted and, become, and became sexually close to the Moabite women, and naturally they began to share life and common interests, and eventually they worshipped their god, Baal of Peel. Why is God so angry? Well, God is angry because God is a jealous God. God is a jealous God. He is angry because He takes relationship very seriously. God's relationship with Israel is likened to husband and wife. I've said this before, but the book of Numbers is like a journey that the husband and wife takes right after the wedding. The husband personally drives his beloved wife home to their family house that he has prepared for them. 
But on the way home, the wife keeps jumping off the car to have sex with other men that she sees on the street. <laughs> Baal of Peor is not Israel's first act of adultery, spiritual adultery. On the wedding day itself at Mount Sinai, at Sinai Israel dishonored God. They committed adultery with a golden calf right at the bottom of the mountain. But you see, adultery is not an issue, it's not a problem if the husband doesn't care and doesn't love the wife. Or if he cares less that an adulterer steps into the marriage. But God cares. God is loving. God is faithful. He is a loving and faithful husband. It is in the very DNA of God to be jealous. His name is actually Jealous. He called himself Jealous, actually. In Exodus 34, God says to Israel, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. When we think of jealousy, what do you think of? I would think of a green-eyed monster. Rightly so, because human jealousy is usually mixed with frustration and envy and malice. But God's jealousy is different. It is praiseworthy zeal. It is a zeal to protect the love relationship. It is a zeal to avenge it when it is broken. And it is a zeal to preserve it because it is so precious to Him. When God made a covenant with His people in Sinai, God was serious about it. He was serious about Israel and He was into a long-term, faithful, loving relationship with them. And that's why God grieves whenever the heart of His people goes to, a, goes to a rival. He burns with the hottest jealousy whenever we be, they betray and dishonor Him and defile themselves with lust. Whenever they love and align themselves to everything else except Him. Now, where on earth, you think about it, can you and I ever find such a truly and completely loving and faithful spouse besides God. But this is the Christian God, a God who is loving and faithful. Now, that's how God is like in the relationship. He takes it seriously because He treats His people as His beloved. He takes unfaithfully, unfaithfulness and betrayal seriously. Christians, those of us who are Christians, Let's think about it. How about us? Do, how do you view your relationship with God? Do you take the relationship seriously or casually? Do you take God Himself seriously? Christians are those who are in Christ, share a covenanted relationship with God, and that's why Apostle Paul could say to Christians in Catherine, I betroth you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The passage today poses a huge challenge, I think, to all of us Christians, to reassess, to re-examine how we have been treating Christ. In what ways have we been like the Israelites, betraying God, whoring, and yoking ourselves to idols? Every day as we continue our journey to the New Jerusalem, as we await the return of our Saviour, our bridegroom, along the journey, 
Who and what do I love and trust? Who do I desire to please and spend time with? In a marriage course I've been, back, uh, I've been to a few years back, um, I was shown a 15 steps to unfaithfulness in the article. 15 steps to unfaithfulness. The gist of it is that adultery doesn't just happen. People don't just decide one day to hop into bed and become unfaithful to their spouse. No, adultery is a culminating act of many tiny steps of unfaithfulness. Each step in itself does not seem that serious or much beyond the previous step. The article listed 15 steps, from step one, sharing common interests, to step 15, sexual intercourse. 15 steps. Israel did not fall into yoking themselves to Baal overnight. Israel glided into it. Polycarp, a second century Christian, when he was tempted towards apostasy, he said, 86 years, he's 86 years of age when he said that, 86 years have I served him, God, and he has done me no wrong. How can I deny my king and my saviour? Christians have a faithful and a loving God who has done us no wrong, who is jealous over us, who is jealous over his honour. Now, Christians, I ask myself, do I remember that? If I do, I must resolve again and again to stop playing with fire and to stop flirting with idolatry. Israel's story is that while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to haul with the daughters of Moab. When Kenneth lived in Kuala Lumpur, he began to haul with fill in the blanks. Let not, let not that be my story or your story. Now, you may be someone here today who says, well, Kenneth, I'm not an Israelite. Neither am I a Christian. So I'm not in any covenanted relationship with the Christian God at all. So how could God be angry with me as an adulteress, aligning myself to something other than Him? Well, the answer is quite simple. Whether you are Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist, the Bible says that Israel's God is also your God and my God. Because He's the one who created you. He made you, He gave you life, and He loves you. He has been caring for you all this while, and as your Creator, He treats you as His beloved creature. He deserves your praise and your worship for that. So if you put yourself in God's shoe, how would you feel with the way that you have been treating Him? bowing down and yoking yourself to everything else and anyone else except Him, your one true and living God. So if you are thinking today, should I choose Jesus? You must choose Jesus because He is the only God who loves you. There is no other way. Let me now recap lesson one and two before moving on. Lesson one, Israel has a problem an adulterous heart, and that is really not just Israel, but everyone's problem. 
for we all have an adulterous heart. Lesson two, God is jealous and angry with adulterous Israel. His wrath is upon them, threatening to kill them. Well, God is actually jealous and angry, not just with Israel, isn't it? But with the whole world. His wrath is upon all mankind. Now, the last lesson and the third point that I would like to point out to you shows us that God's wrath upon Israel was averted. God's wrath was averted. Firstly, notice that there was a plague that was killing the Israelites. Take a look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, <clears throat> Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. God in His anger sent a plague to punish Israel for the evil, for their sin that is against Him. And this plague seems to have been killing the Israelites day after day. Until Phinehas, the priest, killed the blatantly sinning Israelite and the Midianite woman. And that's when it stopped. And what God said in Mo, uh, to Moses, verse 11, gives us a further insight to what happened. Verse 11, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. In that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. He was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. God's wrath could have consumed more than the 24,000 Israelites. It could have consumed and killed all of them. They all deserve to be punished for their sins. But God explained that Phinehas' action turned back his wrath from the people. He said that Phinehas made an atonement for the people. Now, atonement is the key word here. The word atonement in the Bible is like, it's like a diamond. It's just multifaceted. It tells you many things. It can tell you about forgiveness, about cleansing, about ransom, about many more. But basically, the word here describes how a holy God and sinful man can coexist how a holy God and sinful man can exist at one moment, atonement, at one moment. In the case of number 25, Israel could have been consumed completely by God's wrath. If nothing is done, Israel simply cannot live if God's anger against them is not dealt with. The sight of atonement that is on display here in Numbers 25, therefore, involves the aversion of God's righteous anger and wrath towards human sins. Now, we might think that Phinehas' killing of Zimri and Cosby was a bit overboard, but it is because they were pierced and executed for their sins, they were punished on the behalf of Israel as leaders representing Israel, that Israel averted God's wrath, and therefore they can live. Verses 14 to 15 make it explicit a report of the death of these two leaders. Verse 14 says, The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed in the, with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, the chief of a father's house belonging to the Simonites. And the name of the Midianite woman was killed, who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zul, who was the tribal head 
of the father's house in Midian. This report is to make the point that atonement is achieved only by the way of death. In this case, the death of two principal sinners against God. Now, if you think about it, isn't atonement very good news for you and me? Because you and me, like the Israelites, have sinned against God and deserve His wrath. To know that the fierce anger of the Lord can actually be averted, to know that the righteous wrath of God on sinners can be turned away, and to know that our sins can actually be atoned for, that is really good news. Consider what good news, such good news atonement is in light of what Jonathan Edwards, I quote again, say about God's wrath. He said this, If it were only the wrath of man, even though it is a powerful man, it would be nothing. The wrath of kings is pretty scary. They own the lives and possession of their subjects. They can do whatever they want with them. Anyone who angers a king is in danger of the worst punishment that humans can invent. But the most powerful earthly king in all his majesty, armed with his greatest terrors, is but a worm in the dust in comparison to the great and mighty creator king of heaven and earth. All the kings of the earth are like grasshoppers compared to God. They are nothing, really, less than nothing compared to God. Friends, many times, I've lived as though I have no idea who I'm cheating on and messing with when I flirt with the world and its idols. But Jonathan Edwards seems to be very clear about that. Who is messing with? In light of my stubborn and adulterous heart, in light of the one whom I've sinned against, atonement is beyond good news. Just as God provided a way of salvation through the bronze serpent, God provides a way for His wrath to be averted, to be turned away from sinners such as me. And all those of us who have faith in Christ, this wrath has been turned away in Christ. Paul says in Romans 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God put Jesus forward on the cross as a propitiation by His blood. Now, to propitiate means to turn away one's anger or one's wrath. Paul is saying that the death of Christ is God's ways, God's means of removing the divine wrath from sinners. God's wrath fell on Christ instead of us. Christ absorbed God's wrath on our behalf. So that now, whoever believes in His Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, friends, the truth in Lesson 3 is quite mind-boggling, don't you think? Even for Christians to comprehend. 
And I think one of our favorite songs here in Smack captures that very well. I'm not going to sing it, but I'm going to read it. You can sing it in your heart. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. The agonies of Calvary. You, the perfect Holy One, crushed your son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. Your blood has washed away my sin. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Once your enemy, but now seated at your table. All we can say as Christians is, Jesus, thank you. Let me now end by going back to the question that I asked earlier. Will you and I be embarrassed to talk about God with our friends using Numbers 25? No, we must not be and don't be. Because number 25 shows us a great God and points us to the cross of Christ where wrath and mercy meets, where His love and His faithfulness and His glory is in the fullest displayed. Let me end by reading to you from Titus chapter 2. For the right response to God's love is to love Him. The right response to His jealousy over us is to be zealous for Him to be zealous for Him, His cause, and His honour, to be zealous to advance His glory, to be zealous for good works. Let me read to you from Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we have you. We thank you that we have a God who is jealous over us, who is jealous over his own honour, a God who loves us and is faithful to us like no one is in this entire world. Father, we thank you that your zeal drives you to reconcile yourself to us. That our Lord Jesus went to the cross, took the wrath, your wrath, that we deserve. That we may be forgiven, that we may be reconciled to you, that we may call you Father. Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a short while, together as a family, as a church, May your spirit remind us of the cause that it caused your son. It caused you, your son, that we may be reconciled to you, that we may be seated at your table. And may your spirit fill our hearts with gratitude and with thankfulness, saying, Jesus, thank you. In his name we pray. Amen.